0: Well, we were in this text last week and after prepping today and this Friday, I think we very likely will be in this text next week. We are in a larger series of John, but in this all of a sudden, we've slowed down to a mini-series of just the parable or metaphor of the Good Shepherd. Um, I don't know about you, but John 10.10, the thief comes to steal, kill and destroy, but I have come that you may have life and have it at the full is one of the verses that I've probably held on to the longest in my faith, uh, just that I continue to come back to again and again and again, both excited to believe and then at many times trying to make myself believe. And so in that, we... I wanted to go slowly, because while this metaphor of shepherding, I think pretty much makes sense to us because even though we don't have a shepherding culture, we generally understand the idea of caring for sheep and sheep are dumb and all this stuff. And we get it on a high level, but there are some particulars in this passage that I think are important to know and are very they, they take the parable and take it one level deeper for us and it, as it was for them and One of them we talked about last week, uh, which was talking about the voice, and the voice in which Jesus says, hey, if my sheep know my voice, they won't listen to another, and that was a clear thing of shepherding in which you would train your sheep to know the shepherd's voice, so that when they went to sheep pens, and at an inn where you would have a sheep pen and you would bring all the sheep in, you'd bring multiple herds in there, and overnight all the herds would be sleeping and and mixing with one another, and, you know, it'd be chaos in the morning, and all the shepherd had to do was just walk in and say, simple sound, and only his sheep, only her sheep, they would only the ones who would stand and follow him. In fact, if you died suddenly without an apprentice who was transferring the trust of their voice, the original shepherd's voice to the apprentice, you would lose the entire fold. There was no ability to be able to gain their trust once you, have, you don't have a continual chain of passing the voice from one shepherd to the next. And so we talked last week, uh, a, a teaching that we'd actually done a couple years ago, but it was a good emphasis of I don't know, I just generally freak out, and most of you freak out about, like, how do I know the voice of God, and how do I, like, am I following it, and then maybe I don't know it, maybe I'm not a sheep, and so we did a whole teaching of what it is to discern the voice of God. It was very good, and if, in fact, I always save my best for Memorial Sundays and Sundays like that because I know the true Christians are here, <laughs> and I want to nourish the sheep. And this week, I want to get into the parable of the door and the good shepherd, and the next week we'll get into the thief. But in the door and the good shepherd, this is another part of the metaphor that would make more sense to them, and to bring you into the context, this is what it looked like to have a door. Because a lot of people take this, you know, I am the door, and whoever comes through me will be saved, and they go immediately to like, just the idea of like salvation language, which is not wrong. Uh, but I, I think we just go to the idea of just like there's a door into salvation and, and Jesus is the door. But this also, again, was an actual metaphor or parable of shepherding. And so there is a concept of shepherding that there is a door into a pen. And the door, because it was a pen in which shepherds would come and use and many would use, it didn't have an actual physical door. It would just have a rock wall that stood about yay high uh, and you know, probably even closer to maybe about you know, four or five feet. And then around the rock wall all the way, there would be an opening, which was, of course, the door. And the only way that the door actually functioned as which is that the shepherd would lie down at night and sleep in the entrance, and the shepherd would become the door. And because wild animals know Shepherds are trained, they generally have an idea to be afraid of these pens and the, uh, the men and the women who are in these pens and are, are caring for the sheep. Wild animals tend to give the, uh, keep their distance because they don't want to go through the door. And sheep also know, because the shepherd is there, they wait inside the pen and they don't leave through the door. So the only people who can actually trouble you are people who are going to climb over the wall. Those are the only ones you actually have to worry about. And even those, the sheep have to willingly go because, again, they don't know this person's voice. And so if they're going to be abducted, they have to choose to not cry out and wake the shepherd. And so fleshing that out, that's generally what we have going on here. We have the voice, we have the, the door, and we have the idea of the good shepherd versus the hired hand, and they will only listen to the good shepherd. And with all that context... I want to get into, again, the idea of what is the door and the Good Shepherd and, and making that a little bit more flesh and bones to us in, in our life. And let's put it like this. Again, the idea of going in the pen and not passing through the door until it's time and following the shepherd and listening the voice, is this idea of those who stay in the pen. And then those who, it says, go to exit out the door and will be led out to pasture. These are the ones that will experience life and life to the full. And I'm going to put these in two ways. And one of the book phrases I'm going to borrow from a book by Dallas Willard, which I'll have a few quotes from. And that is, you will experience life without lack. And how that is defined by Willard, and I think how it's defined scripturally, is life where you lack nothing and you fear nothing. You lack absolutely nothing. You fear nothing. Absolutely nothing uh, like this life without luck. I'm provided for by the good shepherd. I have everything I need and want I will always have everything I need and want Everything that has come before has been to prepare me for this moment, and I am not behind or without I have all to be completely content completely joyful completely fulfilled right now you today this moment that is true of you if you follow the voice of the shepherd. Similarly, life without fear. Willard says this Jesus taught us not to be afraid of those who can kill the body. He also discussed other fears people have, each of which he gently and intelligently dismissed. You can live completely without fear. God is the kind of being who, if you will place yourself in his hands and trust, will ensure that nothing can ever happen to you that will make you say, I'm afraid, or I don't have enough. What do you fear? Whatever came to mind, I want you to know that you have nothing to fear. If you doubt this, I urge you to ask God to give you a peace about this. Let him say, or let me say it again, no matter what you fear, you can live without fear. Fear. You do not have to be afraid of anything, nothing, absolutely nothing, not death, not loss of loved ones. And he goes on for a much longer list at different points. If you take the time required to come to know and trust God as he is, follow his voice, in other words, asking the Lord to give light to your mind, you can come to a place of perfect peace and fearlessness. And at multiple points through that quote, "Your mind said what my mind says as I read it, and that that is complete bull." And you get really cynical about it. First of all, you're like, "Ah, this is just like trite things that you know this author wrote to sell books." The reality about that is just the legend and the stories of Dallas Willard, who's not that old. He passed away in 2013. He was a, philosophy, a chair of the philosophy department of Southern California. And he was a brilliant theological mind that completely embodied everything he taught. Everyone would talk. If you were around Dallas Willard, he was, this is where the term comes from, a non-anxious presence. Because he lived in a way that, in the foreword of this book, the person who writes the foreword says, like, this was, everything you read here you knew it to be true because he just embodied it as he talked. In fact, you'd go to conferences recently, I've heard people talking about going to conferences uh, where Dallas Willard was uh, speaking, and they would be all like the big names of Christianity, which is a lame concept that we have that. But either way, they had big names of Christianity and written big books. And they said those people, their little sessions had like a decent amount of people, but the one that was completely packed to the point of it smelled like BO when you walked in and people sitting on the floor was Dallas Willard, who is not a gifted speaker. He is not entertaining. He is not compelling. Well, he is compelling, but not because he's really you know, articulate and picks the right words and, and uses all the right illustrations. People have described sometimes Willard would just be like when he's talking, it's like he releases a balloon and just lets people watch the balloon float away. And that's really kind of the pace at which he talks, by the way. Again, uh, I sometimes put on Willard when I'm trying to fall asleep. It does the trick and, uh, and comforts me until I get there. But, again, you're like, okay, cool, awesome, fear nothing, never lack anything. Um, But I've asked for that. Like it says, he says, just like ask God for that. I've prayed for that. I've asked for that. It doesn't seem like it's working. I don't see many other Christians who seem to be living that way. It doesn't seem like it actually pans out. And I would say to that, no, you have not been trying it, nor have they. Uh, G.K. Chesterton talked about it's not that following Jesus is found to be wanting when people do it. He said it's actually been found to be very hard and therefore untried. Because often when we have the idea of actually following Jesus, we are more like the Israelites in the Old Testament than we think, of which we just kind of back away because he's a lot bigger and a lot scarier, and he asks for a lot more of total abandonment and trust in him than we're willing to give. And so we we generally say, no, thank you. I will take my level of control I have over my life because at least I know what that... I, it works sometimes, it works enough, and it makes me feel like I'm able to hold on to stuff and, and be generally safe and provided for, except when it doesn't. But I just have to push through those times until I can get back to when it feels like it does. So there's that cynicism. There's also the cynicism where it just says, like, man, you don't, you don't know how life works. If you think this, you don't understand the idea of suffering. You don't understand the level of abuse. You don't understand the level of physical illnesses or, or mental health struggles or, or the amount of, so you look around the world with poverty and you look around, like, you don't get the world if that is your view of it. But the reality is is that I, I don't know your struggle. I don't know your experience. I don't know so many experiences of people around the world. But David did. Of the Old Testament. He spends 10 years of his life living in caves and running from the king of Israel who is attempting to kill him. He has a couple times where he can actually kill the king, but chooses not to because he trusts this isn't the way it's supposed to happen and he keeps running for the rest of the 10 years. David lost an infant shortly after it was born. Grieves terribly for it in the Psalms. David had his kingdom taken from him by his son, who rose up a coup, ousted him as king, and he was discarded by his own family. And David is the one who writes Psalm 23. Likely as he was king, not as he was being chased because you don't have a lot of writing material there, but as he is king, as he's reflecting on his life, he writes, and this is my paraphrase, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. That wasn't my paraphrase, but this will be. (laughs) Therefore, I lack nothing. I'm under the care of another. I cannot mess up my life because I'm not in control of it in the first place. You will grow me. You provide a life in which I will become fearless. I will become as wise, as selfless, as full of peace, as full of life as you are. When people see my rich soul, they will say, this is what God must be like. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear nothing. You're with me, your rod and staff, they comfort me. Though my enemies are around me, you provide me a feast. My cup, your provision, is completely bottomless. Surely, no matter what happens, no matter how I run, no matter how I fail, no matter how unprepared I am, no matter how sinful or, or broken I am or how the sin or brokenness of the world come to me and, and give me this or that that I did not expect, I will find it impossible to get away from your goodness and your provision and your protection. It's like they will hunt me down and capture me. And I will dwell in the provision and the presence of my protector forever and ever. This is what Jesus is saying when he says, I've come so that you might have life and have it to the full. You will never have an experience when you follow and trust me that you will say, I don't have enough or I am afraid. John 10, 9 through 11. Let's read it again. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, He will be saved. Again, yes, salvation, but also he will be saved by fear and lacking. He will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I desperately want this. I have spent most of my life yearning for this kind of life. I do not come by it naturally and I do not embody it. I am not a non-anxious presence. I suffer from multiple things, including regular anxiety and depression cycles, in which I feel like this is impossible to achieve. But God says, if you want it, Seek to discern my voice, follow my voice and block out the other voices which are going to sound really good, including the one that says, you got to take care of yourself. No one's taking care of you. No one's going to do it for you. You're alone. That's not the voice of the shepherd, the good shepherd. Follow his voice. Let's read verses 1 through 8. Truly, truly I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens. The sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own name, or calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all of his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they will not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I will say this again because this is the main idea. In order to actually embody this life, in order to actually be receiving this life, it is, yes, a desire of wanting it and a want that leads us to, again, seek to continually discern the voice of the Good Shepherd and then a lifelong process of releasing ourselves to just follow the Good Shepherd. I follow this voice. I don't follow the other voices. I don't follow my own voice if it contradicts with the Good Shepherd. I have major trust issues as an individual, uh, mainly because of my, I don't know, my background, my family, you know, upbringing, um, know, lots of stuff. If you talk to me long enough, uh, you'll, you'll, uh, there's lots of reasons why. I'm not unique. <laughs> most of you have major trust issues. In fact, I would say one of the most fundamental states of humanity is major issues with trusting somebody other than themselves. And a lot of us even struggle to trust ourselves. (laughs) And if you want life and life to the full, you have to risk learning to trust. You have to risk laying down your ability to hold it together and following the voice of the Good Shepherd. Flip over with me to Psalm 131. I was at a retreat recently, which there was a speaker, Zach Eswine, if that voice is familiar to you, I quote him a lot when he says the Christians are always encouraged to do something big, fast, and furious, but the kingdom of God always chooses to come to the small, often overlooked things done for a long period of time. I can't tell you how burnt out I am on conference speakers. I get nothing, ever, 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 ever. I love Zach Eswine. He rocks my soul. And he did so, and he opened up Psalm 131, which immediately was like the spirit hitting me between the eyes because when we had our Sabbath day retreat this past fall, which if you went with us, about 15 of us went to our Lady Fatsima uh, Fatima Retreat House and did like a day of, of retreat, and there was opportunity to receive spiritual directions from a couple of spiritual directors there and to spend time out in nature, praying, silence, solitude. And they have a prayer labyrinth, and I decided to do the prayer labyrinth in the afternoon. And the way in the prayer lamp, rab- uh, labyrinth, you either to, are to pray or just to recite scripture or truth. And so on the way in, I decided just to pr- uh, recite Psalm 23, the entire way in. It takes about 45 minutes if you go slowly. You're supposed to. And so I just like talk or, or say Psalm uh, 23 over and over and over and over until I get to the center. And the center is meant to be like you have, it's like you're arriving in the presence of God. It's this long journey of wilderness and eventually you come to the center of God and you're supposed to sit down and rest. And then you're supposed to exit and walk slowly and wander back out of the presence of God or at least back into l- your life. And on the way out, I was like, well, I did Psalm 23 all the way in here. I want something else. And so I just opened up to page 519 of my Bible. And a really short one, I was like, oh, this is short. I could probably memorize it, was Psalm 131. And I spent the entire time walking out of the labyrinth reciting Psalm 131 over and over and over again. And Zach Eswine, at a conference where I received nothing, opens up Psalm 131. And I'm listening. Because there was a lot about Psalm 31. Let's just read it. A song of the ascent of David, by the way. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. For I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Again, I said that continually for about 30, 45 minutes. But there's a lot of it where I'm like, I don't get this wean child business exactly. I get the general concept. I get the idea of being a child with their mother, the comfort, all that stuff. But there's some of this I feel like I'm missing. And so Zach, I was not open up Psalm 131. And he said, let's talk about this. And the first, he talked about the opening verses. He said, hey, David's writing, Lord, my heart uh, is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me. He said, you know what David's doing here? He's just getting to the point where he's saying, I give up. I give up trying to be the one to keep it all together. I give up asking, why did this happen? I give up saying, God, I don't get what you're doing. Because maybe I say, God, I don't get what you're doing. But I give up saying, God, I don't get, so I will not move until I understand what you're doing. I give up saying, how did this happen? How could a good God do this? This, is, this stuff is just too high for me. The same stuff that was in Job. When God says, hey, all this stuff, all these questions of suffering and pain you're asking, they're good questions. They're just I, they're too high for you. You don't have the capacity. David is referencing Job here. as He says, hey, I'm, I'm giving up asking all that I need to figure it out before I trust you. Because... He wants a life of peace and wants a life to the full. And if you want life to the full, you have to risk trusting. There's no other way. And so, he becomes one who trusts and completely follows the shepherd. Like, the sheep are like, okay, so we're going... You want us to go through the valley that I've been trained my whole life not to go through because like 100% of people get robbed and die there. And there's places where it gets really dark and you can't see, and there's like venomous and predatorial animals in the dark places that you might even be able to hear them breathing, but yet you won't be able to see them because of the darkness. You want us to go through that valley. And, okay. If you say it's life and life to full, I will go. And I will fear nothing. Sheep trust that their shepherd is following them to good, no matter what. This is really hard to adopt when you're young and successful. Which, let's be real, in America, we all are. In this church, we all are. If you're not, welcome. But enough of you. That's why Jesus says the rich young ruler, it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Why? Because it's really hard to give up trusting yourself when it seems like it's worked for so long. But, good news. Life will, at many times, knock the sawdust out of you. And it will do it repeatedly. Some of you have not experienced that. It is God's gift to you when it comes. Some of you are experiencing it now. It is God's gift to you that it is here. Because life is reminding you. And whatever you believe about suffering in the hand of God, I think that's a really complex topic that I don't even pretend. I've given up trying to understand that. Whatever it is, however it comes about, God will make it, bear dividends and life in your soul. And so the sheep follow the good shepherd. Um, And then David gets in this idea of being a weaned child. A weaned child. um. So infant children have no object permanence got a visual description in Jovi Burton right here. Um, if you can't see her. Infant children have no object permanence, meaning that they if you take something away, they don't remember that it ever existed until you bring it back. They also have no capacity to feed or care for themselves. Absolutely nothing. So when you hear a baby scream their face off, it is because they have no concept of what, how they can feed the hunger that they experience and the thirst that they have, and they have no memory of anyone ever coming to feed them and care for them. It is essentially, I mean, this is comparable to, like, what waterboarding torture was, which is where people, you know, would put you on a board and put you underwater until about, like, right the moment before you were going to drown and then brought you back up and then did it again until right the moment you thought you were going to drown. That is essentially what infants are experiencing of I feel like I'm going to die, and I have no idea when it is going to end. Sleep well, Chevy. Um, but I oh know. Let me say. Let me go with this. Let me go back to uh, the illustration where uh, again S. Wine used this. Um, he talked about he's got a, a four-year-old son. Uh, He's got a large, he's older, but he has a four-year-old son um, from his, his second marriage, and he talks about this four-year-old, and he says he's a spiritual director. His name is Noah. And he said he regularly is in the process of telling Noah, hey, Noah, you're a loved boy. And he says it every night, every night, you're a loved boy. And Noah's even gotten in the process or in the habit of saying, yes, I am. In fact, he even said one time, one of his cousins came over and said, hey, Noah, you're a little boy. And he said, no, I'm a loved boy. And then they like to play on the living room floor with train tracks. They like to build train tracks for um, Thomas. And as Hila said, they build them for Thomas and Percy and James and Henry and Emily and Luke and Victor and Dash, Bash and Ferdinand. They're the logging locos. You know them. And at one point, the train tracks when he's playing will get disconnected. And in that moment, he does not believe he's a loved boy. He screams and cries and fits, because he cannot access the idea of the previous time when his father came and helped him fix it. said, it's okay, we can fix it. Now, it doesn't even matter if you say that to him. He screams and screams and screams until it's fixed, and even then, for a while until he believes it's fixed and kind of gets distracted. We struggle, I struggle to believe that God is capable, that he knows what he's doing and that he's going to be good to me, that he actually loves me. He's capable. In the scriptures, God is gonna say, hey, I made all of heaven and earth. Look at the birds, look at the flowers. I provide everything for them. And I love you like a billion times more than them. I'm not going to let you die. I'm not going to let you, when you say die, and you're like, oh, what about the person who has cancer? I'm not going to let you die eternally. And even when you're going through that, I will be with you. And it will be what produces life and life to the full. He's wise. That's where David is. I just am to get to the point where you know more than I do. You know more than I do. I'm going to get to the point where I am going to stop trying to say I, I need to figure it out first. He's good. He loves us. And that's all whole point of the birds and the lilies. That's the whole idea of saying, hey, I'm a really good father. Not he's just like trying to like, you know, give him his ego a boost. He's just saying, you know what good fathers do? They wildly love their kids. And they provide for them. I've been watching my own children recently. And they have become my spiritual directors. And I watch them, like their whole lives are completely under the care of other people. They, yes, they go to school and they're given homework to complete, but every question that is on the homework, they were walked through how to do that during the day. Then, if they still are struggling with it, they can go to the teacher and they can re-walk them through what they already walked them through. And so that all of the questions, it's like the open book situation where it's just, not only open book, like you have the whole book, it's just like open paragraph. Here's the paragraph and then apply it to this question. And then... If they have trouble still, they come home to, to me and, and Sharon, and we. not only that, if they get distracted a thousand times, I will constantly be, be the one to say, like, hey, what task are we on? Can you say what task you're on? we got to be on task. And then we will make food for them, and we will keep them on track so that they go to bed at a time in which they will be prepared for the next day, mostly. We try to. We will make sure that they're brushing their teeth and so that they have decent teeth for their later periods of life, we will make sure that everything is perfectly in place for them to go about their life. And I remember looking at them and being like, they are so freaking lucky. (laughs) They're so freaking lucky that they get everything. Like your whole life is handed to you and even if you try to run away, and yes, you can maybe like complain for a while and, and try to push away, but eventually whenever you come back, It was still all being cared for you in the meantime. And then the Holy Spirit said, you're dumb. (laughs) Lovingly and gently, but forcefully. And there was the epiphany moment when he said, you are under the care of another. Everything you need right now, everything you're freaking out about, I've prepped you for. I can help you right now, and I'm even thinking about all the things that you don't know about yet. You're not under your own care. Therefore, you will never have a time where you will say, I want, I need something, I need something I do not have, or I'm afraid. I love that concept of uh, saying you're a loved boy. In fact, uh, Zach, that's when he started saying that he and his wife, in the midst of his, uh, his anxiety that he has, another reason why I really trust him, um, his anxiety that he has when he kind of is going into it and his wife apparently says he just always goes palms up when he's there and his wife sees that, sees that he's going palms up, just lifts his palms up, and that's a sign of him becoming anxious. And then she will pull his head against her own forehead and say, You're a loved boy. You're safe. And he'll say, yes, I am, regardless of how much he believes it. There's something powerful to saying these things out loud. To have something. Recently, I've just been getting up every morning when I get up and I wake up. If I'm in an anxiety cycle, of course, the first thing happens to me. Of course, you wake up because you have to go to the bathroom and you will not be able to get back to sleep. And you will just sit there and spin on anxiety. And when that happens, what I'm trying to do is I try to say something to the effect of this. This is a little bit longer than what I say, but I I say pieces of this to myself most, most days, most mornings, and when I'm getting going. I say, God is the good shepherd who because he leads me, I am under the care of another. I don't have the pressure or burden of controlling my life. He has me right where I need to be and right where I dream to be that he might give me life to the full. I'm not behind. I have been prepared with everything I need for this moment. I have and will continue to have a life that lacks nothing." I try to say that to myself. I don't know, I don't have a count. As many times as I possibly can before my day gets going and my mind has to be focused on other things. Because ultimately, Faith is an exercise of, this is Willard again, he breaks it down into attitude and action. And he describes it with this concept of like, hey, you have an attitude about something, like such as like, I have an attitude that my car generally starts and will take care of me. Now I don't, I, I ride a bike, I don't drive a car, but uh, uh, because I care about this world. And uh, I don't know, I also just like it, but either way. Um, I'm really joking about that, (laughs) that's really not why at all. I care about saving gas because I think I need to provide for myself. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But either way, um, I have a general trust that my bike is going to take me from point A to point B. I have a real good trust that my car is going to. Therefore I don't, when I go to work, I don't get out of my car and I don't spend, virtually I spend no time thinking about my car or if it's going to work or if I should go test it a couple times during the middle of the day. Or if I should call someone else to have a backup plan just in case it doesn't start. And the reality is, I know if it doesn't start, I can call someone with a backup plan. So therefore, I spend no time thinking about my transportation. That's not everyone in this world or this city. I spend no time thinking about my transportation. Why? I have an attitude that I can trust in it, and so my actions, I don't think about it, I don't worry about it, I don't make contingency plans. So much of faith and trust is trying to put in these concepts, these, download these ideas, and trying to make my heart believe this attitude. I'm under a care of another, I am not behind, I have everything I need, and I'm trying to gain an attitude so that eventually, slowly, but surely, my actions, okay, you wanna go through the valley of shadow of death? yes, I will do that, I will do that today will match match the attitude of the idea that i trust that god is a good shepherd that he is the door that's what he's going to go on and say hey i'm not like the hired hand i don't have time to read it but in 10 through 15 he's going to say hey i'm not like the hired hand like how do i know he's good well because i'm the one who actually cares for you not because like i'm just like it's a job like, I will risk my life if something carries you off. I will risk my life if you get in trouble. I've set this all up that you can feel so protected and provided for that if it comes to me dying, I will do that in order that you will live. And you're like, when has God ever done that? Um, because that is the faith that we base our entire life on is that god said hey i will i will make sure that i die so that you won't so you can trust to pick up your cross even if it means you dying because in the end you really won't that even death will bring life and bring it to the full Wine talked about his son where he said like you know if you like zoomed in on his face when he had the train tracks broken and you just saw this child just screaming and weeping and in agony but then zoomed out slowly and saw him being held by his father who's also fixing the tracks and putting them back He said now his son one time he even had the tracks break and he said, it's okay. We can fix it. He's becoming like a weaned child. Who, A weaned child is you're slowly but surely being stretched to say, I feel like I'm going to die. But yet my mom did come last time. And she's come every time before. And so I'm stretching my ability to think, okay, I will wait for five or more minutes before I think, no, she's not coming and I am going to die. And then, you know, I will scream a lot harder. I mean, the reality is, is you can't, like, I think parents always have this thing of like, you gotta try to like, you know, save your child from every psychological damaging thing. So you have to like provide for their food before they know they're hungry. You can't. It was meant to be this way so that they might be stretched further and further and further to knowing when I feel like I'm going to die. I will be provided for. And so, Zach's son, myself, are slowly in the process where we're trying to get to the point where I, I'm freaking out and it feels like they should be coming, like my mom should be coming and I don't, don't see her yet, but she did come before and has come every time before that and even though this one kind of feels longer than the other time, I'm going, to, I'm going to try to think that she's going to come now and I'm going to calm myself in peace that she's going to come and she's not going to let me die. It's okay. We can fix it. Oh, there's so much more to be said, but that's why this wasn't going to fit in one week. Let's instead come to the moment of communion and reflect on the idea that even this was meant to say, hey, Jesus is saying, hey, come and do this every single time you're with me because this is a reminder that I was broken and died. Why? I laid my life down because I trusted the Father so much that he would allow me to pick it up again. And so now you see that that worked for me and that is what I'm doing for you. And if you don't believe me, just look at the fact that I gave you the surety by saying I am willing to die so that you won't. And that's part of what we're rehearsing week in and week out at the moment of communion. He's broken and he dies So that even when I feel broken and dead, or am broken and dead, I will have life and have it to the full. I will not be abandoned. I will not be alone. I do not need to figure it out on my own. And so I take, I rip the bread, I dip it in, because the body of Christ was broken for me, and the blood of Christ was shed for me, and also for you. So come down the center aisles and return on the side. If you are a believer, we invite you to come and take the elements here during the next song. Let me pray for us now. Father, I do pray, Lord, for so many of us who are still wrestling with all of this sounding like baloney. And all of us that are still fighting to be a weaned child. Lord, I pray that you would sustain our souls long enough to the moment where you show up and each time you stretch us so longer and longer we're able to say you'll come. I'm not going to lack anything. I don't have to fear anything. Lord, that just feels like a million years away from me and you and us not from you but lord i pray thinking that you have said hey if you want this i will lead you i will grow you just keep working on figuring out my voice i will help you grow in that too keep working on following my voice I will help you work on and grow in that too. Keep locking out the other voices. And I will help you grow in that too. In Jesus' name, amen.